Well, we've said several times since we began that the Hebrew Christians to whom this letter is written were facing escalating persecution from Rome as well as an enormous amount of pressure from their fellow Jews to renounce their faith and forsake Christ and return to their Judaism. In Hebrews 10, we read that they had experienced a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For they had compassion on those in prison, and they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. And the writers obviously attempting to encourage them to stay the course and to remain courageous and to persevere in the faith and endure to the end. And at the end of chapter 5, he did something that could have, at least at first, seemed a bit odd. Because of all the great Old Testament characters he could have chosen and actually does choose later as examples of faithfulness and steadfastness and courage under pressure that would have encouraged the small church to whom he was ministering. Here he chose a seemingly random and obviously obscure character by the name of Melchizedek. He's only mentioned in Genesis 14, verses 18 to 19, and in Psalm 110, verse 4, but his obscurity is eclipsed only by his significance that is so important that the writer felt it was necessary to pause and wake them up from their spiritual slumbers so they could hear what he has to say. And that's because... Melchizedek, while obscure, is the perfect character to introduce at this point because Melchizedek points to Jesus. And he points to him in a way that no other character does. You know, as I was thinking about it, it's interesting that the timing of this week's text could seem a little off for us. The proclivity of fear, the hostility that seems to be escalating politically, the hypocrisy that is being exposed in regards or in regard to certain social issues, the volatility of the economy, the severity of the illness, and the variety and number of potential diagnoses and prognoses is creating a weariness, an uneasiness, an uncertainty. And, and I think if we're honest, we have to admit an overwhelming sense of frustration. And in the middle of that mess, we come to a text about Melchizedek. But brothers and sisters, it's, um, it too is a perfect text for such a time as this. You see, any other character from the Old Testament would have brought with them the opportunity for us to fall back into old habits and look at how we might be like them in the midst of our circumstances. We would have been tempted to follow our natural bent, to concentrate on how we might be like Abraham, or Isaac, or David, or Daniel. But with Melchizedek, our only option is to concentrate on Christ, because that is who he points us to. Melchizedek points us to his, or Christ's, superior position, his superior qualifications, and his superior character as our great high priest. He is superior to anyone and anything, 
the world has to offer, and our eyes should be on Him alone. Let's pray together before we begin. Father, would you very simply in these moments encourage us from your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what I want to do is I want to answer the question, why Melchizedek? Why Melchizedek for such a time as this? And first, because the answer to that question is because he points us to Christ's superior position. Melchizedek was both a king and a high priest. He was a king of Salem, and he was a priest of the Most High God. So he was a royal priest. This was something that no one was allowed to do according to the law that the Lord gave the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And his royal priesthood was far superior to that of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. And one of the ways we know that is because Abraham paid a tithe to him after he and 318 of his family fought for and won the release of his nephew Lot from a group of kidnappers led by a man named King Kedor Laomer. Paying a tithe or paying of tithes to others was a sign of being in subjection to them. And so by paying a tithe to Melchizedek, Abraham was acknowledging his submission to Melchizedek. So what we have is the father of many nations, the one through whom all the nations on the earth would be blessed, acknowledged that Melchizedek was greater than he was, than he was, as you know, greater than Abraham was. And the writer also says that because Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel, those within the tribes of Israel after him, including the tribe of Levi from whom the priest came, were also subservient to and really, and really inferior to him. The writer actually says, because of how their ancestral ties worked, it was as if the Levites had actually paid ties to Melchizedek in advance through Abraham, so they therefore were subservient to and inferior to him. But notice too, after Abraham pays the tithe, Melchizedek blessed him. Again, the father of many nations, the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, is actually blessed himself. It would seem that the one to whom the promises had been made would be the one who would bless people, but here Melchizedek blesses him. And the writer says, the inferior is blessed by the superior. And what is the writer saying? Well, what he obviously says, Christ is from the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. He is the king of kings. He is the great high priest who is far superior to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Everyone is subservient to and everything about the Levitical priesthood is inferior to him. Well, why Melchizedek? Well, secondly, because he points to Christ's superior qualifications. Melchizedek had no father or mother. This was simply a way of saying his genealogy was not a factor in his position. He wasn't a priest because he was of a particular line like the Levitical priests who had to be from the line of Levi or Aaron. He did not inherit his position because of his bloodline. He was appointed to that position. The writer also says that Melchizedek had no beginning or, or beginning of days or end of life. In other words, his birth and death are not recorded. Again, unlike the Levitical priests who could only serve for 30 years, Melchizedek was not bound by his age. He, 
his priesthood was not, not bound by term limits, to use some common language of today. Anyway. And the writer says, Christ is from the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. His genealogy, while important as far as his position as king was concerned as a descendant of David, his position as a priest had nothing to do with genealogy. He was not from the line of the line of the tribe of Levi, he was from the line of Judah. He was not a priest due to his hereditary hereditary his heredity, but had been appointed as a son who had learned obedience. His is an eternal kingdom, and it is also an eternal priesthood. He is now ruling and reigning on his throne in both a general sense over all creation and a specific sense over his people. And he is now serving in a perpetual manner as priest. His purifying work, um, being complete, he continues even now to intercede on behalf of his people before the throne of grace without interruption. So he is, when we ask why Melchizedek, we say because of um, his position and, of course, because of his qualifications. And finally, because of his character, his superior character. Melchizedek's titles um, were King of Righteousness and King of Salem, which means King of Peace. But listen to the prophecies and descriptions of the Messiah, who, of course, is Jesus. In Zechariah 6, it says that it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Prophet Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. In the New Testament, John calls Jesus the righteous, and Paul calls him both our righteousness and our peace. As one commentator pointed out, Jesus brings righteousness and peace together in his person. As the psalmist magnificently indicates in the Lord, righteousness and peace kiss each other. So righteousness and peace for Christ aren't just titles. Righteousness and peace are a part of who he is. Again, to quote that same commentator, he says... Jesus is righteousness incarnate. He is intrinsically righteous, the essence of righteousness, the sum of righteousness, the source of righteousness. He is the essence, sum, and source of all peace. But, of course, it doesn't stop there, because while Melchizedek had the titles, he didn't have the ability to make anyone righteous or at peace. He couldn't bestow righteousness or peace. He couldn't facilitate them. And therefore, he couldn't bestow what people really needed. But Christ, of course, is not only righteousness and peace, he is able to bestow righteousness and peace. He is alone able to mediate righteousness and peace. And he does so in that order. Peace always follows righteousness. True peace is not possible before or apart from righteousness, and Christ provides both. So, why Melchizedek? Why is he the perfect person to drop into this letter and into our view right now? 
because he points to the superiority of the Lord Jesus. Now, why, why does this situation seem to be rocking everyone's world, this corona situation? Why is it having such an effect? And, of course, we've talked about the fact that, you know, it, it's brought or, or uh, it's created this fear of death, of course. Uh, but uh, as I thought about it this week, it, it came to me that, you know, I think it's really having... Um, it's having its way with people because at the end of the day, everything through which they are seeking to self-justify, and everything in which they are placing their trust to make sure they are okay and in right standing before God, others, and themselves, and everything by which they are making sure their lives matter and bring them peace is all being threatened. And they, and and really we have to admit, we have come face to face with the fact that those things that we look to to do those things are simply idols. But idols aren't the only issue. Most people are also looking to people in prominent positions of power and authority to meet their needs, alleviate their fears, and restore their security that's been threatened. They're looking to them to restore their righteousness and peace that's been threatened. Many are also looking to themselves and their ability to remain socially distant and self-quarantined to gain it all back in some way. But you and I both know they're looking in the wrong place. So what do we do? couple things I want us to consider. First, we ourselves need to repent of our own idols that have been exposed. And we need to ask ourselves, to what or to whom have we been looking for our righteousness and peace other than Christ? And then we need to repent and rest in the fact that because we have looked to Christ in faith, not only are our sins forgiven, But his righteousness has been imputed to us and because of that we have been reconciled to God and are at peace with him and can and will experience the peace that is from him. We have the peace of God because we are at peace with God. And secondly, we need to live in light of and proclaim the truth that the righteousness and peace people need and are looking for are found only in Christ. Let's be ready, brothers and sisters, as opportunities present themselves to give a defense for the hope that we have as we are called upon in these crazy days to minister to one another. Let's pray.